Greetings to all you out there in podcast land. This is Adam Voigt, and you're listening to The Aristotle Project. The Aristotle Project works to bring back ancient wisdom for the modern world. We do have original thoughts and our own philosophy separate from Aristotle, but unless you understood Aristotle, you wouldn't understand anything we have to say that's original. So, we created this so that you could catch up with this someday. But, along the way, Aristotle is quite a roller coaster ride. So, buckle up and we're on our way. What is knowledge? What is the good? What makes an action moral? What is moral responsibility? What makes a human being good or bad? Is there a moral law apart from local conventions? How does human nature relate to ethics? These and other questions are the subject of the Nicomachean Ethics, the subject of the next season of the Aristotle Project. Okay, so, yeah, all right, now we're started. All right, Ed, thanks for coming back up again. Yeah. All right, so today's topic is utilitarianism. Okay, so this is a sort of a dorky term, but it, there's another term called hedonism. So, uh, Utilitarianism is like kind of weird. It, it, somebody came up with it like in the 1800s, but hedonism is based on a Greek term, so that's probably the best one. And it's the idea. See, in one sense, hedonism is a common everyday thing where people just chase after pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. And don't plan for the future or don't uh, use their other faculties uh, properly. But in hedonism is related to that. Uh, in philosophy, it's the belief that all action is or ought to be oriented towards increasing pleasure in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's the real purpose of action. And people who don't chase after pleasure or try to maximize it are wrong. So that's what Aristotle's talking about here. And uh, um, so if you, we can see this more clearly, if we go back to the last chapter, in the last chapter, he says that there's three objects of choice and avoidance. Now they were one, the noble and the base, two, the advantageous and the injurious, Mm -hmm. and three, the pleasant and the painful. So... That's interesting. There's three. So three three is an interesting number. So when we see that there's three of anything, that gives us a clue as to the nature of that thing. Um, sometimes it's not, you know, that useful. Like, for example, the fact that there's three levels in a cosmology. I don't know what that tells you. But here, we're talking about action of living creatures. Mm-hmm. And so there's, uh, according to the psychology of many 
classical civilizations, there's three parts of the soul. <clears throat> and each part of the soul has its own distinct activity that it is essentially for. Mm -hmm. And this activity, one way to characterize it, or the best way, the most complete way, is to tell what the purpose of that activity is for. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, when you explain why birds have wings, you're like, well, the purpose is to fly. You know, if you, know, you, you if you try to, like, pick apart the structure of the wing and everything, and or the ontogeny of the wing, or the, even the phylogeny of the wing can be best explained by saying that, look, there's a thing you can do if you have wings, and it's fly, you know? Yeah. So that's what we're going to do with uh, each of these. Uh, Aristotle's argument is based on these three actions and how they're related. So it seems that there's which of the three it's in. But the thing is, it's hard to link each one of these to a different part of the soul. So the noble and the base, that would be the mind, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So if we're thinking politically, the ruling class, who are the nobility or the monarch or the they king. They make the decisions. Yeah, he should be, he is or ought to be motivated by the, that by the highest level and most long-term concerns. Mm-hmm. You should be planning for the next seven generations, as they say, right? And therefore, your mind or the king, king mm -hmm. or whatever, is the nobility. Yeah. And so then the next two are advantageous and injurious. Which is? Which just means like, uh, you know, you're just dealing with uh, what's useful, you know, and what will have just... Uh, it's just the most practical level of, you know, uh, uh, like, for example, you could do a certain kind of work because it's advantageous for that work to get done. Or you mm -hmm. could do it because you take pleasure in it, right? Yeah. And if you Even do... Different parts of the soul sometimes are charged. Yeah, so, like, if you do it because you know that the result of that work will give you pleasure... Well, then that's a different that's a different way to get pleasure from work than by just doing the kind of work that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. So in each case, even though the ultimate result is to get pleasure, as we've discussed, then, you know, it's kind of different. Each of these, both of those causes are so it's hard to see how it seems that pleasant and pain, mm -hmm. if we're looking in terms of the. Uh, If we're t thinking in terms of politics, in terms of the three classes, pleasure and pain would be would pertain to the lowest class. Uh, that's what. But if we're thinking in terms of the rational, the animal, and the vegetable soul in each individual human being, yeah, it seems that pleasure and pain would pertain to the animal soul because the vegetable plants can't feel pain. Mm -hmm. You know, but. Plants do have advantage and injury, you know? And everything higher than a plant does have advantage and injury. 
you know, we can clearly look at a tree and if you chop that tree down, you probably don't cause it any pain, but you're definitely harming it, mm -hmm. you know? So I think uh, I'm going, in my argument, I'm going to interpret, uh, this is my interpretation of what Aristotle is saying. I'm going to go with the three parts of the soul and not the political view. Uh, first of all, that's what the ethics is all about, each individual soul and the three parts of it. it. We don't quite get into politics yet. There's a separate book for politics, which we might do later on. It's very fascinating. So anyway, so those are the three objects of choice and avoidance. Okay, that was in the last section. And, um, and I, I'm thinking that we can get a better idea how they relate and how to interpret Aristotle's argument if we think in terms of the three parts of the soul. The mind, uh, the mind by nature seeks for that which is most truly good, the most profound good, the real good. The animal soul seeks after that which seems good in the realm of sensation. Yeah. And then the plant soul just doesn't try to get pleasure or avoid pain. It just tries to do what's advantageous, I guess. That's the fundamental level of soul. So <clears throat> now we're going to look at, oops, hold on. We've changed pages. So now there's an argument that disagrees with Aristotle here. And that is that instead of that if the mind really thought properly, it would see that the true goal is pleasure, attaining pleasure and avoiding pain. That's the true final Why goal. Why not of reproducing? Well, that's true. I mean, from an uh, evolutionary perspective, why do we have pleasure and pain? You know, uh, like to guide us. Like, for example, many people make fun of. Uh, well, that's true. To guide us for what, though? To reproduce. It could be. To live. It could be. It could be. That's now Aristotle. Uh, the so, it depends on what your foundation of your philosophy is, and how you define it. So you're already thinking ahead, which is good. So, in this section, he says, what is the telos that wish has for its object? Telos? Yeah, the telos is Greek for purpose, or goal, or end. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. <clears throat> it, it means all those things. Okay. <clears throat> so, what is the telos that wish has for its object? There's two different things. Does uh, our desire have... For its proper object, the, the true idea of the good, or the subjective impression of the good. Those are two things. And what's the subjective impression? So the, the proper telos of desire is the subjective impression of the good. Well, because you just want it. Like, you don't actually know in your life what's like really what you want. Like, been going through your whole life but you know you have it you know okay so what what you really want is that which just seems good not uh 
the idea of a real good behind the appearance or behind the impression or the perception is not really relevant to your desires. Well, I mean, is that what like, you're saying? I feel like people don't grow up being like, oh, I really want to have a child. You know how much mm-hmm. I want a child? I mean, I guess so. Some kids have like baby dolls and things. But like, you know, like I've never been like, ooh, my goal in life is to reproduce. I yeah. feel like a lot of people like feel the same, you know? That's true. Well, that's true. Uh, so I think, like, yeah, definitely pleasure would be. That's true. Okay, so, and this is actually a very, uh, a, quite a common uh, idea. And in modern philosophy, in 20th century philosophy, it's, uh, it's very common for philosophers to take as their, uh, their assumption uh, that the subjective impression of the good is what wish or desire is uh, truly about. Mm-hmm. So, Aristotle gives arguments for and against all of these. So, some people say, no, it's actually for the true good. And then Aristotle says, well, one thing about this is, if the telos of wish has for its object the true good, then what about bad people? Do they truly want the true good? No, they don't want the true good. They want something that's bad, but which seems good to them. Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, an argument against uh, the, the idea of the, the good, the true goodness. Okay? Mm-hmm. But in favor of the subjectivist, or in, against the subjectivist, here it is. If the subjective impression of good is the telos, then the above problem is resolved. But there's a disadvantage that the good is only true of the particular or for the individual. So, so what you each individual has their own idea of what good is? Yeah. And so you're, you're decreasing the generality of your principles and you're restricting it directly to what you perceive and this is uh brings it in line with many forms of skepticism uh, that were common at that time especially protagoras remember protagoras back in the metaphysics Mm -hmm. who said that the uh the measure of all things is uh man or anthropos which means humans so, uh, and he was taken to mean that everything that's true is true for you. And you can't even say that it's true for you from the day you're born to the day you die. It could just be true for you at this very moment. So, like, if I said that thing is red, well, it wouldn't be red till I go blue, but it's true for me? It's true for you right now at this moment. Because I have, what is it, vision? Yeah, you you have it now. You, you might lose it. Yeah. You know? So, like, you can't really say anything at all. Uh, I mean, you can say something, but it might just be untrue the next moment or from yeah. someone else's perspective. I see. So, he's, if you know about Pythagoras, then you know that he's actually showing that this utilitarianism is based on an assumption that the ultimate good is not some real good, but is merely the impression of good. And this is related to an argument 
where the ultimate truth is not some real truth, but merely the truth right now for you, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think there's a strong relationship between these two. So abstractly, here's a quote from him. Abstractly and as a matter of truth, the really good is the object of wish. And so to the good man, that is an object of wish, which is really so and truly so. But to the bad man, anything may be the object of wish. Just as physically those things are wholesome to the healthy, which are really so, but other things to the sick. The most distinguishing characteristic of the good man is his seeing truth in every instance. In this case, the good is finding pleasure in the mean in accordance with phronesis. So he's saying that apart from what you actually happen to find good in this, in your perception at this moment, there is, apart from that, a true good. And whether or not you find good in something in the right way at this time, there is some standard, your true nature, which determines whether you ought to find it good or whether you ought to find it bad. And this is the truth, which is behind appearances. It never directly appears, but it can be inferred. And uh, this is what science is or knowledge is. And I think that it's also not just Aristotle's concept of science, but our own concept of science, that there is a nature for things that is behind the appearances and only the mind can see it. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, if you really understand the nature of the thing, then you understand what the good is for that and what the good would be for anything else if it had a mind or a And that's soul. only true for you. Well, is it? I mean... Well, what you think is good, though. Like, if you don't think something is good for somebody else, mm -hmm. and that is still good for you, though, right? Because it's still a good thing, even if, like, it's not correct. Hmm. Yeah, well, like, if you th really think it's good and you can't be persuaded otherwise, does that make it good for you? Well, then you, it's not maybe for you, because, I mean, you could, like, be thinking, oh, if I jump <clears throat> off this cliff, it'll be, like, extremely healthy. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm just doing something that's good for me, self-care, mm -hmm. you know, and then you end up dying. Mm. Yeah, so that's, that would, I think that that would mean, now, okay, that if we just restrict our discourse to the events that you have just alluded to, someone thinks that for some reason it's okay to do something, but they do it, and then that causes them to fall off a high place and die, right? Yeah. Well, if we restrict our whole discourse to those events, I think we can say that their subjective impression was incorrect and wrong, right? You know what I'm saying? But let's just say that there was a longer time scale, and you're including others, like, for example, their whole species. You know, there's actually these little rodents that live in the Arctic called lemmings. Yeah, and every once in a while, I don't know if this is actually true, but there's this, I don't know, common stereotype of lemmings that occasionally they just run off a cliff and all die. 
right? Like big crowds of them or herds of them. Yeah, and that's what lemmings are known for. Like you hear lemmings, I've people call each that. other lemmings. They're just like, you're just running like lemmings off a cliff. Well, that's like, I don't need, but let's just, that, now to me, that's, I just look at that and be, I'm like, that's just stupid. But a biologist wouldn't look at any behavior that an animal does and say, well, that's just stupid. Because Bio it's for a yeah, biologists know. Like Aristotle is interesting. Aristotle has a phrase that he uses, and it says, "Nature is like a wise uh, housewife. She never does anything in vain. She's the ultimate economist, and economist means someone who is wise in the science of running a household. That's what oikonomia yeah. means in Greek. Oikos is is just like uh, the old English Ethel or Othalon, which means the home, the homeland, right? Mm -hmm. So the running of the homeland, the science of the homeland is oikonomia and oikonomica, right? And so nature is like that. And biologists from Aristotle's time to ours know that nature in general is smarter than you and that if you see something that looks stupid, you should just like basically apply for a grant and study for 20 years. study for about 20 years and then after those 20 years you'll probably find some reason why actually nature knew what the heck she was doing mm -hmm. so you could look at those lemmings and be like well you know what actually the lemmings were right <laughs> right and that's how you learn things you see that someone's doing something wrong and then you're like oh yeah 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 well okay Chalk one up for Mother Nature once mm -hmm. again. The lemmings are smarter than us, right? Mm -hmm. So it may Wait, so not... So why do they do that? Oh, I have no idea. Oh. I'm just saying that, you know, I wouldn't bet against Mother Nature, right? Yeah. And occasionally we find a mistake, but in general, it's she's on the ball, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, so like if you expand it, then... You expand it beyond the lifetime of the individual lemming, then you might be able to find, you know, some good rationality where occasionally running off a cliff might actually be based on the true good that doesn't look good and is really good. Yeah. And so, and so therefore, if we're <clears throat> asking about whether it's good for a bunch of lemmings to run off a cliff, we really shouldn't bother to attach electrodes to their brains and find out, do they get a lot of pleasure out of running off a cliff? You know, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't really make any difference. Probably just to like help the next generation yeah. have enough food or something. Yeah, it, it's kind of like if, you know, we found out that everybody in the world would get a lot of pleasure if we you know, gave everybody guns and had them all shoot each other or something, you know, that may give people a lot of pleasure, but that doesn't mean we should do that, right? Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a reality. And from an evolutionary perspective, uh, we can say that, well, why did pleasure and pain, why did us, those are forms of information processing. Why did that evolve? It evolved for a purpose. Creatures did not evolve for the purchase of purpose of having pleasure in life. Pleasure itself evolved. Mother Nature, in her infinite wisdom, decided, oh, I know. 
for a certain purpose, I'm going to have animals that have pleasure and pain. And then that will uh, help me out in whatever else I'm going to do. So that's kind of what Aristotle is thinking right now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the really good is the object of wish or desire. He, I, he, the translation I use uses the word wish here, which is weird because we use the word wish for something else earlier. Here, he's, it seems like it's referring to desire. I think I'm using a different translation. Mm -hmm. But what we're talking about is wit, desire. So the really good is strictly the op object of desire. And the apparent good, which is the proximate object of desire, is actually just a proxy for the really good. So like, for example... Uh, humans like food that's full of sugar, right? That's not actually good for us. Yeah, it's true. The actual good, uh, so the the seemingly good is just a proxy for the actual good. And Mother Nature used that as a proxy as just a, uh, you know, a convenient way to do it. She didn't know how to program reality into our DNA. So she programmed a proxy. So a proxy is something that you're looking at with view to something else. Like statisticians will use a certain, uh, like for example, they'll use the uh, GDP of a country as a proxy for the general well-being of the people in that country. It's not the same thing, but they... You know, just for the sake of a study, they might use it as a proxy. Yeah. And so, therefore, a government might well say, well, uh, how do we, uh, uh, you know, increase the well-being of our people? Well, how can we increase the GDP of our country? You know, they'll use that as a proxy, too. And Mother Nature is the same way. And I think that the, strictly speaking, the really good is the object of desire. And... It's the utilitarians or the hedonists have mistaken the proximate good for the really ultimately good. So, and, mm -hmm. and so Aristotle gives a non-evolutionary uh, uh, perspective. Yeah, perspective on this, but you can translate it very well into evolutionary terms. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so the good is finding pleasure in the mean in accord with phronesis. So that means that you ought to find pleasure in in not being too brave and thus rash, right? And then not being cowardly, but being having just the like right amount of courage. Yourself? The what? Like complimenting yourself? Oh yeah. Well I was referring to I don't remember if you uh <clears throat> recall like back when we were talking about virtue. Virtue is a mean between extremes. For every yeah. virtue, there's a continuum. So you ought to find pleasure in having the medium and not being too much or too little in the Goldilocks zone, right? Yeah. So, so the good is finding pleasure in good action is an important part of virtue, but it's not the ultimate part. The ultimate part is finding good in what's really good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so many are deceived by pleasure and pain. 
which appeared to be the arche, or the source, or the principle of all action, but instead it's a sign of one's virtue as attunement to the mean. All right, so there you go. I think that we've covered that subject uh, quite well. And I don't know if there's anything else to say about that chapter. That's the end of that one. Um, how far along are we? Ah, we're 28 minutes. You think there's anything else we could say? Like, how does the pleasure happen? I don't, oh. like, I, I don't remember getting that unless it's being like, oh, yeah, I, you know, didn't do that because I wasn't too scared or I actually was scared enough not to, like, hurt oh. myself. Okay. So, yeah, the, uh, so Mother Nature gave human beings, actually all animals, the faculty of having pleasure or pain. So this is our sensitive faculty. That's what Aquinas calls it and many other people. So there's other faculties, which are the ability to do something, the ability to grow and to uh, be healthy is common to all living creatures. And then there's a subset of living creatures who have the ability to desire and to have pleasure and to feel pain and to, uh, to um, sort of be aggressive or to uh, give in and, you know, be, you know, there's a, just to have a sort of feeling about what it's like to be that creature and a subjective awareness of like, oh, I feel good about this stuff. And, yeah. You know, that's, that's what's unique to animals. And so humans, in addition, have the ability to think that, uh, about their pleasure and about those of other creatures. But if you're just talking about pleasure, then you're just talking about what we share with animals. And so uh, that is to, what's the purpose of pleasure and pain? It, the ultimate purpose, it's, uh, well, if you're just talking about an animal, the ultimate purpose is to simply make them avoid the injurious or to attract them to the advantageous, right? Or perhaps. So that would mean that you remember we had three, uh, oh, this is actually interesting. We had three objects of uh, aversion or attraction. One was the noble and the base yeah. or good and bad really. The other is the uh, pleasurable and the painful. And the other is the advantageous and the injurious. So if we're talking about just an animal, like when we, like just now we were saying that the true object of pleasure is the really good, which is what the mind is also after, the really good, not the seemingly good, but the really good. And so for a human, the true object of pleasure is the really good. But what about for an animal? Is the true object of pleasure for an animal the really good? Well, I guess because they don't really know, so they could feel, they could feel real weird. Yeah, yeah. 
it's hard to say. Say there's two ways you could say. One is that yes, the object of pleasure for an animal is the really good, but this real goodness is not accessible to them individually because they don't have a rational soul. Yeah. But God has an idea of the really good, or Mother Nature, if you prefer. Natural selection has an idea of the really good, and that is the characteristics that they need in order to not go extinct. And God doesn't want them to go extinct either. So, and then what's the other one? Well, the other possibility is that, oh, well, the desires of the animal are to make it attracted to that which is advantageous to it. So the other part of the soul has another uh, set of uh, values and the desire is supposed to serve that part I of the soul. I guess like the desire, like some random animal was born and they were like, oh, I happen to really like doing this one thing that also happens to really benefit me for the ultimate desire. Mm -hmm. Yay, now I'm going to go have children because I'm like really good at living life. Yeah, well, so the advantageous. So there's two different ways. You could say, you could say that the desire should be, is essentially... Uh, oriented or based on a higher goal or like which is the really good or it could be attracted to a lower goal which is the advantageous mm -hmm. so does so we know that like the uh, <clears throat> for example an animal might take pleasure in eating grass because eating grass is advantageous to it that's mm -hmm. a very simple argument yeah well gosh you know sure but then is does the buck stop with grass being advantageous or is there some higher goal that grass serves and eating grass would serve the real good what yeah so like it's uh <clears throat> but this is this is a, a debate which actually is going to be a major later on we're going to have a lot of discussions about this like exactly where is the teleonomic you know functional breakdown which, which way does, which way does it go does it go up or down or in both directions for desire right um, because like for example every um, there's a there's a verse in the Bible it says even though you gain the whole world, if you lose your own soul, it's all for nothing. And like there's a, in the selfish gene, Dawkins quotes this verse, mm -hmm. showing that even if an individual animal gains all the advantages for its own individual self, it's still worthless if it doesn't help it avoid extinction. Yeah. Because this individual animal is going to die any day now. And if it's simply serving its own advantage, then it's not a good animal. It's not a good plant. It's yeah. not a good microbe or whatever the hell it is. It's not a good one of those things because it's it's not for your advantage. The real good is something which is invisible. It's not an instance of its kind, you know, either its own self or maybe its near relative. It's something which is invisible and somehow causes these individuals to come into being mm -hmm. and so that's something 
and it's uh, we'll find that Aristotle is approaching this sort of thing very slowly, and that other human beings in many other cultures are also approaching this idea of what it is that desire ought to serve, that it essentially serves, and where it goes. And that's a major issue going forward. And, uh, and I think the Gita is really good on this, and you know, uh, Plato's Republic is good on this, and, uh, and that's why we're eventually going to turn towards evolutionary theory. You know, we're going to read the selfless gene. Yeah. So is just for this exact uh, uh, problem. And uh, anyway, so I hope that our audience will stick with us for that long. It's going to be, it'll probably be about a year before we really uh, can attack this question uh, mm -hmm. from every angle that it deserves. But on the way there, it's pretty interesting stuff. I and mean, you won't be bored, I don't think. Cool. All right. So if you don't have another question, we can uh, shut down. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. All right. Thanks for asking that question because, you know, that was like very important what we said after that. Okay. Thanks for uh, being with us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.